Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, dear listener, to Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Set aside some moments now and take an adventurous ride on a journey into the psyche of some talented writers. They will dig into your being and titillate you. Oh, I love that word, titillate. While the stories may not all take place in the Heartland, I am delivering them to you from the Heartland. My intention is to strike fear and confusion into the mind, soul, and yes, the heart. This is Fear from the Heartland. Hello, Heartlanders, and welcome to Season 4, Episode 7 of Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Hey, Heartlanders, you guys patrons yet? Visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to join the club. You'll get ad-free versions of this and all our other podcasts, including hundreds of standalone releases from our audio archives dating back to 2012. It's a great way to show your support, and you get a whole lot for it. Well, Heartlanders, quick sidebar. We here at the Fear from the Heartland show and the entire Chilling Tales for Dark Nights team are excited for the changes that 2023 will bring. We'd like to present one of those changes to you tonight. It's a brand new year, and we have brand new merchandise for everyone. My beautiful wife, Nikki, overhauled our selection of Fear from the Heartland goodies that you can take with you anywhere. Shop and explore from over 70 products, all featuring the brand new Fear from the Heartland logo design, including stickers, pins, mugs, clothing, and so much more. To check it out, just click the New Year New Merch link in the description. Three men are captured on an island of cannibals. One of the men asks, What do you plan on doing to us? The cannibal chief says, We have a tradition. We're gonna kill you, eat you, then use your skin for our canoes. But myself and the elders have decided to give you some grace. You can do yourselves in, and you can choose how. 
Man number one says, well, I want a gun. The chief hands him a gun and the man says, for glory, and does himself in. Man number two says, I want a sword. The chief hands him a sword and the man says, for honor, and does himself in. Man number three says, I want a fork. The chief hands him a fork and the man starts stabbing his own legs, arms, shoulders, chest, and stomach. The chief asks, what are you doing? Man number three replies, fuck your canoes. Guess what red paint makes you on an island? Marooned. <laughs> oh, let's get after it. Five deliciously weird stories tonight from the Tainted Isle by Dan Weatherer. The Devil in the Hill, The Hands of Evil, Father, The Hounds of Wisman's Wood, The Abden Boggart. Nearly a year ago, N.M. Brown, the feisty, talented COO of Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, sent me a rather large manuscript from author Dan Weatherer, inquiring if I might be interested in airing stories from the Tainted Isle monthly or bi-monthly. I must be honest, I wasn't sure if such an undertaking would be in the best interest of the show due to the fact that an ongoing series would be difficult for the listeners to stay engaged. I soon found out that all the stories are wonderful, truly standalone tales, no matter when or what order they are heard. I am beyond thrilled, titillated if you will, I am able to bring these stories to you, Heartlanders. If you haven't partaken past Tales from the Tainted Isle, feel free to search on Fear from the Heartland for Tales from the Tainted Isle, Season 3, Episode 21, and Odious Attachments, Season 4, Episode 3. And now, Tales from the Tainted Isle, heard only on Fear from the Heartland by Dan Weatherer. The Devil and the Hill Silbury Hill, Avebury, Wiltshire, March 1872 not all of my investigations came to me by way of personal invitation. I spent many an hour conducting research in some of the finest libraries this country has to offer. For as my experience grew, so did my desire for further knowledge. Folklore and mythology are vast topics. Only now dare I venture that I possess a decent degree of knowledge on each. It was during one such visit that I came upon the tale of Silbury Hill. Situated near Avebury in the county of Wiltshire, Silbury Hill is widely regarded as the largest man-made earth mound in Europe. Dating from around 2500 BC and composed primarily of chalk, it was long believed to be a burial mound. Though no records exist to indicate why the mound was constructed, the architects of such a site clearly deemed their monumental efforts worthwhile. As you may well imagine, tales abound as to its origin and contents. Lodging in the nearby village of Beckhampton afforded me the luxury of meeting those who had grown up in the shadow of the monolithic mount. I heard a great many colorful stories from the villagers with regard to their experiences around the hill, yet each story held at least one recurring element. I shall present the version which most captured my imagination, told in the words of Trapper Jim, as he is preferred to be known. 
That old hill been here longer than time itself. Folk'll try and tell you it marks the grave of some fancy king, but I'll tell you now, ain't nothing buried beneath that place. Truth is, that ain't the work of no man. Tis Lucifer who built that hill, and folk around the ear will attest he's still seen on it some nights. I seen him myself. The Almighty cast him from the heavens, but you'll know that from the good book, no? The devil, he was near happy at having to leave paradise. So one night, he climbed out of hell, emerging right where Silbury Hill now stands. With a plot in mind, he began to dig into the earth. They say one time this were all forest, till he came along and tore it all up, that is. All through the night he labored, building Silbury Hill with handfuls of mud and clay. Finally, exhausted from his efforts, he climbed to the top of the hill and began to scream unholy sentiment towards the heavens. For seven days and seven nights he did bellow at the skies, and God replied with storms of anger and floods of rage, all of which helped shape the land as you see it now. On the eighth day, the devil quietened, returning to his throne in the fiery depths of hell. Some say on a stormy night, if you strain your ear against the din of the wind, ye shall surely hear him curse the heavens. I have, and like I said, many round here have also. Tis the devil's mound, that place. Go see for yourself. Silbury Hill was but a short way from the village, and I made the journey in good time. A small boy by the name of Jonas insisted upon following me along the way. Amongst the many things he spoke of during our relatively short walk, he informed me that he was nine years of age, he had an older brother who teased and beat him daily, and he was not much taken by the broth served by his mother. It was dusk by the time I had settled upon an adequate spot from which to observe the coming night's activity of Silbury Hill, and the sun had already concluded the majority of its westerly descent. The mound itself stood in the center of a large field, which was populated with a herd of cows. I noted that none of the animals, and to my eyes there numbered well over a hundred, ventured within thirty yards of the base of the hill. As night settled upon Jonas and me, for the boy had yet to tire of my silence, a sudden panic set amongst the herd. The cows began to low and pace back and forth, the chorus of their bellows gaining in volume until the flock dispersed all at once and headed towards the perimeter of the field. There was no way out of the pasture that I could see, though I concluded there must be a gate located somewhere, likely hidden from sight by the thick hedgerow that surrounded the field. The cows, now galloping at a considerable speed, thundered towards the hedges that penned them in, and with a level of agility seldom expected of such creatures, leapt into the adjoining greens. Jonas and I watched the field before us empty as pockets of cattle sought sanctuary in the smaller surrounding meadows. I have heard Farmer Paul moan about this, began the boy. He says his cows often run off, and he doesn't bloody know why. I reminded Jonas that it was not becoming for a young boy to use such language and suggested he might wish to return home. The actions of the herd had unnerved me. Something unseen had spooked the animals, and I concluded that this might not be the best place for a young boy to be. He quietly ignored my suggestion and began to beat the tall grass that lined the sides of the lane with a long stick he had procured earlier that day. Mamam won't care if I'm back late, he claimed. She says it lets her get on with her needlework that way. 
Silent hours passed in which I observed the moon sliding across the sky. I welcomed the nightly rebirth of the stars, and I listened to the comings and goings of various nocturnal animals. Jonas continued to entertain with a series of stories about his older brother and the misadventures that usually followed until eventually he grew weary, curled himself into a small ball, and settled into a light sleep. Aside from the bovine exodus hours earlier, little of note had occurred, and I felt my eyelids growing heavy. The gentle snoring of the boy, the subtle flutter of the stars, and the unseasonably warm air of spring hastened me towards slumber. It was the heat that woke me. It came at first as a gentle lapping, as though I were dozing next to a roaring fire, which my mind reminded me I was not. Jonas was still asleep. I climbed to my feet. The wave of heat lightly stroked at the right side of my face. It was radiating from the area of Silbury Hill. I turned. There on the hillside shone a pillar of flame and within it the outline of a figure. The light emitted by the apparition illuminated half of the hill and more. The heat made the air shimmer and the image of the flaming figure began to waver and warp. I called to Jonas, who did not reply. A quick glance down revealed he was no longer sleeping. Instead, I caught sight of him fleeing back towards the village, a mud-spattered pair of bare heels glowing in the moonlight. Again, I was overcome with a sense of curiosity, one which drove me forwards, regardless of fear or logic. Though the temperature began to climb with every step towards the flaming figure, I followed him up the hill. As I drew nearer, I was forced to slow my pace or else collapse under the weight of the intense heat. I heard the air begin to crack and tear. Such was the temperature on the hill. My clothes started to smolder and my hair proceeded to smoke. The flaming figure was but 20 yards ahead of me, oblivious to my presence, but I realized I could get no closer without exposing myself to danger. The figure in the flames reached the peak of the hill and stood for a moment before shrieking at the night. The meaning of the words uttered was lost. Such was the intensity of the voice that cried them. I pressed my hands to my ears, fearing I might lose my hearing entirely. As the last syllables of his cry faded, the figure began to melt into the earth. Feeling the air cool and with ringing in my ears, I began to pick my way up the hillside, eager to reach the summit before the specter disappeared entirely. Alas, I was not so fortunate for when I reached the top of the mound, naught remained but a small circle of charred grass. This was the first investigation, of but a few, where I had found little in the way of answers. Perhaps that is why it is so easily called to mind. I do not like to leave an investigation no better for having started it, yet occasionally this comes to pass. Though the story with which Trapper Jim had regaled me was indeed colorful and entertaining, what I witnessed on the hillside that night was no devil. So I ask, who was the soul destined to forever march to the peak of Silvery Hill of Flame, and what of his torment? I conclude that we might never know, for the tale of his origin seems to be lost in the annals of time. To this day, I have yet to identify the apparition, though sightings of the Flaming Man, as he has come to be known locally, continue to be reported. The Hands of Evil The Road to Dartmoor, 1876 
Let us return to the journey I discussed earlier and continue with our story as I explore one of the most desolate regions of our country. Dartmoor is a damnable place. Her windswept moors offer little but misery and despair for anyone unfortunate enough to become lost within her. Many a traveler has lost his way and disappeared within her boundaries. The moors seldom return a body. My interest in this wretched place concerned an alarming story regarding a set of disembodied hands. Now, by this time I've been privy to all manner of weird and fantastical stories, but a pair of hands without a body? And a malicious pair at that. For all reported sightings of beatings, assaults, and even murder, Pity the driver, then, who, having already been forced to assist in an unconventional burial in the village of Colleton, was then subjected to a vicious attack from said disembodied hands. That day the moors played host to a fierce wind. The rain lashed hard against the sides of my carriage, which swayed and bobbed as though we were traveling not along a road, but upon the turbulent North Sea. Suddenly, and without warning, the carriage veered sharply to the right and tipped onto its side. I was thrown from my seat and landed hard on my shoulder. Aside from that impact, I was unhurt. Above the roar of the reins, I could hear the whinny of the horses and the cursing of my driver. Miraculously, it seemed that neither of us had been seriously harmed. With great difficulty, I managed to climb free of the carriage interior and out into the downpour. My driver busied himself releasing the horses from their reins that they might right themselves in the mud. I assisted as best I could, though, not being practiced in the workings of a stagecoach, I fear my fumbling efforts actually hindered our progress. One of the horses had broken a leg. It was with great degree of sadness that I watched my driver end his suffering, the crack of the pistol momentarily piercing the din of the storm. My driver led, holding the reins of two of the horses, one in each hand. I followed with the remaining horse. Neither of us engaged in conversation, for the ferocity of the tempest all but stole our words as soon as they were spoken. It was better to save our breath. Tired and weather-beaten, we pushed on along the track. We walked most of the night before chancing upon a small coach house named the Ner Taken. Mercifully, a light shone from within, and after a few minutes knocking, we roused the innkeeper. Fatigued, we stabled the horses before making our way into the empty bar where our kindly host had set a fire for us. After a quick change of clothes and a bowl of warm soup, I elected to question to my driver as to how we had come to find ourselves upturned in a ditch. I know it weren't me, he began, his eyes wide with certainty. I've driven through worse, sir, much worse. Faster, too. It weren't the horses, neither. I know the weather was rough and all, but they've seen rougher. They weren't spooked or nothing. I pressed him further. If you'll pardon me for saying, sir, this journey has been naught but mither. I've made a pretty penny like, but after tonight, I'm thinking of staying in the city and doing short runs. I've had to my fill of the countryside, I reckon. He took a sip of whiskey, and it was then I noticed that his hands were trembling. I don't know what to say, sir, he continued. I was holding the reins tight as always in a storm. I could see the road ahead. The horses were calm. And then, he paused, searching for the right words. And then, 
<laughs> Bugger it. Someone else's hands took over. I asked him what he meant by this. It weren't my hands. For a start, I was wearing gloves, see? He produced a pair of wet leather gloves from his jacket pocket and placed them on the table. These hands weren't mine. They were big, real big. And hairy. I saw them. Felt them grip mine. I thought my hands were being crushed. It hurt so bad. Then the hands yanked the reins hard right and off we went. When I asked to see whom the hands belonged, he could offer no satisfactory reply. They didn't belong to anyone, sir. There was no one behind me. There's no room for anyone behind me anyway. I didn't even see any arms. It makes no sense. Not to me, it don't. I thanked him for explaining and fetched him another whiskey in the hope it would calm his nerves. Never had I seen such a man so shaken. I assured him that I believed his story and that he was not to blame for the accident. But the hoss... I had to end it for him. I've never had to do that until tonight. Poor thing, it's no way for an animal to go. We shall have to bury him on the morn. I agreed that we would and turned to the innkeeper to inquire as to the possibility of lodging. You had a run in with John Cutter then, lad? I asked the innkeeper to elaborate, citing that we had seen no one on the road save for ourselves. I heard the fella there. He was talking about them hands, weren't he? I nodded. So you did meet Cutter, or what's left of him anyways. The innkeeper placed a shot of whiskey before me and continued. Drink up. You'll be needing this. You can thank me after. Few met Cutter and live to tell the tale. He's a real best in these parts. Trade has trailed off since word got out about his deeds. We don't see too many folk this way nowadays. I tell you, he'd be better off in jail than running free in the moors. The innkeeper proceeded to tell me how a local sculptor by the name of John Cutter had taken to robbing coaches that traversed the moors, due to being unable to sell enough of his sculptures to feed his family, and how he was eventually apprehended. As he had become known as a highwayman of some regard, it was decided that an example be made of Cutter and his hands were removed. His freedom was returned, but handless and unable to work, he soon lost his home. His family, now disgraced, turned their backs on him, and he ended up roaming the lonely moor roads, begging for coin. Such was his infamy. All who met the handless man knew his identity and of his crimes. Few spared him their breath, let alone a coin or two. It was not long before Cutter inevitably starved to death. He was found dead by the side of the road, the very road which my driver and I had traversed earlier that night. With no money to his name, he was buried by a group of villagers in an unmarked grave near to where he had been found. It is the stretch of road which passes his grave where incidents involving the severed hands of John Cutter are reported at their highest. He died penniless and angry, continued the innkeeper. Jail might have spared his life, Spared us all, I say. Anyway, his hands take what they want now. He has attacked many women and children, too, and he brought you off the road tonight. Make no mistake about it. Maybe it's his way of getting his own back on those that robbed him of his livelihood. Maybe old habits die hard. All I know is you won't get me traveling those roads at night, 
not for love nor money. The next morning, partially revitalized by a few hours sleep in comfortable beds, my driver and I set off for the wreckage of our coach with the story of John Cutter still fresh in our thoughts. The moors looked no more welcoming by light. A dense fog had settled, meaning that visibility extended no further than a few yards. There was no birdsong nor wind. The moors were still, save for the two shadows who dared venture into the fog. The carriage lay in pieces by the side of the road. The damage inflicted looked far worse by day than we had imagined. My suitcase lay open, its contents strewn across the way. Torn pages from my notebooks, sodden with rainwater, flitted and twisted on the whim of the light morning breeze. Occasionally, a sudden gust would lift one of my papers, and I would give chase, only to admit defeat when it was swallowed by the fog. The remains of the horse were gone. Where the hell is she? said my driver. Who'd have taken her in a storm like that? I studied the area where the horse had lain and noticed a series of tracks in the mud, which indicated that she had been dragged from the site of the crash. Of footprints, I could find no sign. The two of us gathered up what we could carry and headed back to the inn. We would arrange for a second coach to collect us with the intention of returning to Bristol. Whether or not it had been the ghost of John Cutter who had claimed the carcass of one of our horses and forced us into a ditch the night before went unproved. The Moors would keep their secret that day. Father It is no secret that my choice of path caused a significant degree of friction between my father and me, though the issue was never spoken of at great length. He was a proud man and with every right. Having established himself in the textile industry at an early age, he went on to become one of the nation's leading suppliers of high-quality materials, receiving a royal commendation to recognize his hard work. That he should be upset that I, his only heir, chose not to follow him into the family business was to be expected. I recall one evening he entered my study which was most unusual as he and I seldom crossed paths, though we dwelt in the same house. At this time, I had yet to make enough of a fortune to purchase a property, and as my family home afforded me the comforts I required, I ruled out the idea of renting, preferring to work towards securing a place of my own. I was working on a set of case notes. I forget regarding what exactly, and I did not divert from my work save to acknowledge his presence. For a time, he walked the floor of my study, pausing intermittently to scrutinize a particular book from my collection or to examine one of the numerous artifacts I had amassed during my troubles. It was while he inspected a mourning brooch that he spoke. What is it that you seek scrabbling around the darkened countryside? Surely it is not success. I set aside my pencil. The directness of his question had caught me unprepared and his expectant glare informed me that he required an honest and intelligent answer. I always assumed that my father saw success as measured in wealth and prestige, and it was these issues I opted to address. I shall certainly not be involved in the work that I do for financial gain, for what little coin I am paid pales in significance to the fortune I could have acquired had I opted to follow in your footsteps. He placed the brooch back onto the bookshelf and turned to face me. 
It was the first time I'd ever seen the ravages of age in my father's features. His skin was pale, his eyes were circled by dark shadows, and his hair seemed limp and colorless. It is not money that measures the worth of a man's son. It is what he has done for those around him, whether he chooses to help others or to help himself. Standing and influence count for nothing if you do nothing but fill your own pockets. I had never heard of my father speak so openly before, and any notion I had held regarding truly knowing the intricacies of my father's temperament disappeared. Though he was a man of few words, my assumptions about what drove him in his work had been proven incorrect. It was then that I realized he and I were more alike than I had dared to imagine. I do this to help in what little a way may transpire. I tried to bring understanding. I tried to dispel fear. Yes, sometimes I fail. Sometimes I am challenged by forces I cannot possibly ever hope to understand. Yet I am driven to try. To better myself with more knowledge, so that when a community or an individual reaches out to me, I can help the best that I can. A whisper of a smile crossed those aged lips of his. And what do you mean to achieve? In the long term, I mean. I admit, this was not something towards which I had dedicated much thought, and his question began to stir ideas that I had only previously entertained in passing. I don't know. I wish to continue with my work, for I have developed a passion for it that no other occupation can hope to replace. Perhaps a book or a series of books documenting my work for future generations. My son, the author. Perhaps in time, when I have enough material. Seemingly satisfied, he made his way towards the door. He walked with a stick and a pronounced limp. How had I not noticed this before? My work had apparently captured my attention far more than I had realized. He paused at the door, his hand hovering over the doorknob. They are all laughing at you, you know. The families, the boys whom you schooled with in their proper jobs and their grand houses. Though I knew this statement likely to be true, a pang of disappointment struck my gut. I care not what they say. Leaving the study, he spoke only a solitary word. Good. The Hounds of Wistman's Wood West Dart, Dartmoor, Devon, November 1872 The incident with the hands of John Cutter was not my first foray into Dartmoor, nor was it to be my last. My initial excursion consisted of a visit to one of only three high-altitude forests in the county, a place known to locals as Wistman's Wood, so named from the local dialect Wished meaning eerie. I am familiar with the writings of Dante, and it was his work which played upon my mind as I crossed into the throngs of the dark forest. Though autumn was upon us, no carpet of colored leaves lay upon the ground. The gnarled oaks that populated this forest had withered and died many years ago. This was a place not a part of the cycle of life, but of death. The air hung stale and silent, the ground sodden and still it was clear that no creature made its home in this cursed expanse. 
I chanced upon this force having seen it depicted in a series of oils by artist Merrill Chanter. I was fortunate enough to engage her in a conversation at the close of her exhibition, and she told me why she had chosen to paint these particular woods. I find beauty in the most desolate wastes. An Englishman might spend his whole life never knowing what wonders lie beyond the hills that border his home. It is my desire to bring the forgotten world to attention. She continued to explain her fascination with Wisman's wood. This is a place not easily reached, for it lies on the banks of a mountain, or so the climb would have you believe. Little thrives here. There is a beauty in its solitude that I was driven to capture on canvas. It is said that the Countess of Devon, Lady Isabella de Fors, planted the forest shortly before her death. Legend has it that the oaks grew into the intricate shapes we see today out of sorrow. You see, the Force's one wish was that her creator would see her in bloom. Alas, this was not to be. Few locations have remained with me quite so acutely as Wisman's Wood. Her paintings conveyed a sense of loss seldom committed so profoundly to canvas. I purchased one of the oils of the forest and it remains hanging in my office to this day. I lingered, my painting under my arm, until the crowds had dispersed and the gallery was to close. It was then that Merrill recounted the story which instigated my visit. There is another legend attached to the woods, she began though I must forewarn you that this tale is ripe with dread. There was once a farmhand smitten with his master's daughter, but the master of the house was fiercely opposed to their friendship. Unperturbed, they continued to see one another using Wisman's wood as a meeting place. The force provided them with secrecy, affording them a private place where they could be together, far from prying eyes. In time, their relationship blossomed, one night, the farmhand returned to the home of his master, alone and covered in blood. Overcome with shock when pressed, he babbled about the hounds of the night coming out of the darkness and snatching his beloved from his arms. In an effort to save her, he took her by the hand before turning to flee. Free of the forest and far from the bang of the hounds, he turned, only to find all that remained of his lover was the bloodied stump of her forearm. This he then produced for his master to see. The master ordered a thorough search of the forest and its surrounding area, yet no sign of his daughter was found. With no body recovered and only the far-fetched testament of a frightened boy upon which to make a decision, the master, overcome with woe, deduced that the boy had slain his daughter in a fit of rage and had buried her remains somewhere within the woods. The farmhand was hanged from an oak on the edge of the thicket and his body interred beneath. It is said that should you dare the forest when the moon rises high and full, you will hear the bang and howling of the hounds who, catching wind of your scent, shall hunt and devour your soul. Indeed, many a traveler has entered those woods and failed to leave. No sign of their bodies is ever found. Such is the curse of Wisman's Wood. I admit that I saw no sign of any such beast during my visit, but then I only ventured into the copse during the light of day. After all, I can only paint by light. Come nightfall, that is a place in which I would fear to tread. 
Lit by the full moon and suffering the bite of a stiff easterly wind, I felt my decision to venture into the woods had been ill-advised. Alone, save for my notebook and gas-lit lantern, I traversed the twisted paths that crossed the grove. My eyes proved useless, as did my light, for naught could be seen beyond a few feet in either direction. I swear I had never experienced a truer sense of loneliness before this night. Though I cannot be sure, for the long hours spent in that dreary place may have toyed with my senses. I do believe I heard the sounds of dogs close by. Intermittently, between gusts, when the wind faltered to stillness, gathering its strength for the next mighty blow, then and only then did I hear the bass growl of a nearby dog, low and threatening. Eyes upon me I did sense, yet I could observe no movement, save for the disturbance caused by my own clumsy footfalls. Come dawn, a wave of relief swept over me the likes of which I can scarcely describe, and I picked my way down the hillside wholeheartedly, keen to return to the hustle of civilization away from the dread of the woods. Is it for me to say that Wistman's Woods holds more than a collection of decaying oak and an atmosphere of dread? Of that I cannot be sure. Suffice to say, it would only be the foolish or the naive who would brave to set foot within her cursed grounds after dark. The Abden Boggart, Abden, Shropshire, January 1873 It was the height of January and nary a day escaped the touch of a lingering frost or a gentle flurry of snow. I had elected to remain indoors and dedicate my time to the writing up of case notes, having fallen considerably behind with the paperwork which accompanies each investigation. Knowing that I ought not to be disturbed, Mother came quietly into my study clutching a letter. Having become accustomed to my practices, she placed the sealed envelope on my desk and left. Though I knew her to be curious as to the exact nature of my work, she refrained from asking questions. The letter requested my immediate presence. Penned by the parish vicar, it explained that the farms neighboring the village of Abden had suffered a terrible harvest the autumn before, and, having assumed this was due to a combination of terrible luck and unseasonable weather, the villagers had turned their attentions toward the next batch of crops. However, it seemed that Abden's cow herds were being afflicted by a curious ailment that had already led to a significant number of their deaths. Moreover, the milk produced by the cows was already soured upon milking. The vicar hinted at other odd occurrences, but explained that they would be better discussed in person. Should I accept the villagers' plea for help, I was to lodge at one of the neighboring farmhouses and my expenses would be met in full. It was further added that should I be able to isolate the cause of the cattle deaths, then not only would I have the gratitude of the community, but I would receive extra payment. My initial analysis mainly focused on the possibility that the cows were falling ill due to a new form of disease. Though not medically trained, I concluded that it may well be worth a visit to Abdon, if only briefly, to see if this was the case. Disease shows signs and symptoms that are often missed upon first examination. I wagered I might be able to solve this mystery quickly and set the community to implement preventative measures so that the remainder of the herd be saved. At this point, the possibility of there being a paranormal cause was far from my thoughts. Abden is a small, isolated village set on the slopes of Brownclee Hill, Shropshire, 
I must admit that the hamlet set among the rolling hills of the Shropshire countryside, sparkling in the winter sun, was truly a sight to behold. It is at times such as these that England reminds you of her beauty and demands your attention. Though I suffered from the cold, I had enjoyed my journey. I listened to the snap of frozen mud cracking beneath the wheels of the carriage, saw countless fields of frosted grass, still and defiant in spite of the crisp breeze. I saw a vast forest of bare trees, brooding, silent, and brittle with frost. Winter brings a certain serenity to the land, and were it not for the cold, which I find unbearable, would be my preferred of the seasons. The farm which I was to call home for the duration of my stay consisted of a squat single-story cottage, a couple of barns, and several fields. There was no sign of life save for a cluster of cows grazing in the furthest field. I unloaded my case and bid my driver farewell. As I watched him depart, a sudden wind whipped between the outhouse and the barn, carrying with it a dreadful stench. I began to gag and reached into my pocket. There came a voice from behind me. I'll wager the good vicar never mentioned the smell, right? With a fresh handkerchief pressed to my nose, I turned in the direction of the voice. Standing in the doorway of the farmhouse was a young woman. She wore her long blonde hair in a tight ponytail that hung from her shoulder and fell across her breast. Her eyes were warm and overflowed with kindness, her cheeks red and full. She smiled as she spoke again. Are you going to stand there all day and freeze to death, or do you want to come on in? I ducked through the small doorway and entered the gloom of the farmhouse. The young woman closed the door behind me and pulled a thick curtain across, hiding the opening from view. Fire's lit, she said, pointing to a small wooden stool set to the right of a roaring fireplace. There was no light save for the orange lick of the flames. The few windows the farmhouse offered were covered with the same thick material she had used to hide the door behind. Keeps the heat in, said the woman, noticing my curiosity. Father will be back shortly. He went to get some things from up top. Shouldn't be long. I nodded and thanked her for accepting me into her home. Once the warmth had returned to my bones, I asked her about the deaths of her cattle. We had 19 cows at one point, began the woman as she busied herself at a small sink. Seth over the way had 32. Now we've seven and Seth, he's got a couple more than that. Never seen anything like this before. We've had cows sick before and all, but not like this. Some mornings we woke up to see a line of them all dead. Sometimes they're scattered all over. Don't make no sense. Today we didn't lose any, thank the Lord, but until we know what's going on, none of us are going to sleep well. She went on to explain that she, her father, and Seth provided the village with vegetables and meat. The failed harvest meant that food was already scarce. Losing cattle further added to the community's worries. No one will eat the meat she explained. They think it's cursed or something. Then there's that smell. Horrible, right? I nodded. Comes and goes. With sour milk and other things going on, people are saying we've got a boggart. I had read several articles on the topic of boggarts, but had yet to encounter one for myself. Indeed, the descriptions of the creature varied to such a degree as to almost make it impossible to define what a boggart might possibly be. However, when they were sighted, great misfortune followed, and they quickly became known as omens of bad luck. 
As to whether or not they existed, I was not entirely sure. Folklore is often crafted to explain and to warn of series of unfortunate events and though all may have a highly improbable yet logical explanation, the imaginative nature of folklore lends itself well to the memory. This being so, it was no wonder that the misfortune which had befallen Abdon had led some to believe a boggart to be the cause. I asked the young woman if anyone had seen anything in the area that might resemble a boggart. Some have, or so they say. I've not. Not even sure what to look for. I've heard some say it's hairy, some say it's quick, like a shape that moves so fast you can't ever tell what it really is. One thing they do agree on, though, is that awful stink. The door to the farmhouse opened and an elderly gentleman staggered in, clutching the collar of his coat tightly in a bid to keep out the cold. Beyond him, the wind growled. It took the three of us together to close the door against its might. Once he had removed his coat, he introduced himself as Abel, said that the young woman was his daughter, but did not offer a name, and joined me by the fireplace. He confirmed that he had dictated the letter I had received and was grateful for my presence. I recited the information his daughter had related in his absence, whilst he nodded and added further details of his own. I then asked him what he had meant when he wrote of those other odd occurrences that would be better explained in person. There were the dead cows and that and the smell. He began, Old Mrs. Earnshaw in the village. She says that she's woken the night by something pulling on her ears. Hard like, enough to tug her out of bed. She says she didn't see who it was, but she sure as heck smelt him. A lot of folks doubted her until we found those tracks. I asked him what tracks the villagers had found. Animal tracks, I suppose you'd call them. Not like any animal I know, mind. Sets of four, big and cloven. I seen them near the dead cattle, too. Fascinated, I asked whether he or any of the villagers had ever had the mind to follow the tracks to their place of origin. Not bloody likely, laughed Abel. That's why we got you in, a fellow who knows what he's doing. The three of us chatted about village life and the boggart's antics until nightfall, and between us, a plan was devised. Abel and I would keep vigil over his lands that evening in the hope that we might catch sight of something amiss. Should our watch prove futile, we would rest in the day and camp out at night until we witnessed something that might help identify the cause of the curious incidents that had blighted the village. Our first watch focused on Abel's cattle, and for many an hour, aside from the deathly chill of the night, there was little out of the ordinary to report. Then. As dawn approached, we heard a commotion come from amongst the herd. We rushed across the field as best we were able, though our muscles were stiff and sore from cold. Upon reaching the herd, we found one of its number lying dead upon the frozen mud and a trail of large cloven footprints circling the area in which the cows had grazed. Having waited until dawn, we followed the footprints away from the village, down the slopes of Brown Clee Hill, to the marshland that lay to the southwest of the village. It was here that the tracks became lost among the tangle of weeds and sludge so befitting a marsh. We circled the edge of the wetland, battling against the fierce wind and our fatigue, before eventually concluding that whatever we had tracked to the marshes resided somewhere hidden within its perimeter. Heading back to the farmhouse to rest, it was decided that Abel and I would recruit the help of Seth, 
whose farm had also suffered at the hands of the Boggart. Abel informed me that Seth owned a brown bess musket, an heirloom from his grandfather's army days, adding that he thought it might be of use. I admit that I was uncomfortable with the idea of spending a night on the frozen hillside with a man I barely knew carrying a firearm. My primary concern was that I did not believe a boggart, if such a creature existed, could indeed be shot and killed. Still, I agreed to the idea. I concluded that perhaps the presence of the musket might aid the nerves of my fellow watchmen, if not entirely my own. That second night was spent pitched on the northern side of the marshes. This particular vantage point was chosen as it afforded a view of the entire marshland. Hours passed without incident. Abel and Seth filled their time quietly bickering, and despite my urging them to hush, their manner only became more belligerent. I decided that should the investigation extend a third night, I would conduct the vigil alone. Suddenly there came the sound of splintering reeds and the rapid splashing of water. Seth and Abel fell silent mid-argument, and all eyes turned in the direction of the noise. A familiar stench settled upon us. After several seconds of intent listening, I deduced that whatever was moving in the marshes was heading toward us. Seth, it seemed, had reached a similar conclusion. He stood, began to holler, and hurriedly loaded his gun. With Abel egging him on, the pair of them made an almighty din, and it was impossible for me to track the sounds of movement coming from the marsh. I insisted that they fall silent and remain low, but my pleas went unheeded. A shape, at first featureless, leapt from the weeds and darted toward us. Panicked, Seth unleashed a shot from his musket. The blast of the gun thundered through the silence and the recoil knocked him onto his behind. The flash of the muzzle illuminated our surroundings in an insipid white light and I saw the creature. The boggart resembled a German shepherd, only a much larger breed. Its hair was thick, tangled, and spattered with mud. It appeared frozen mid-leap due to the split second of light afforded by the gunshot. Where it ought to have had a head, there was only a furry stump. Before I could begin to rationalize what I had seen, darkness swallowed the form of the boggart once more. Chaos erupted as Abel and Seth struggled to their feet, slipping in the mud, desperate to put distance between themselves and the boggart. With mumbled nonsensical cries, they turned and headed towards the village. I remained behind. The beast with no head lurked somewhere in the black, its exact whereabouts unclear. I knew it was near, for that same rancid odor still clouded the air. For several minutes, all was still. With the smell having gradually subsided and satisfied that I was in no immediate danger, I turned towards the farmhouse and followed after Seth and Abel. At breakfast, I outlined my thoughts to a shaken Abel and his worried daughter. Seth, it transpired, had returned to his home and bolted the door. All attempts to persuade him to open it again had been futile. I explained that the creature we had witnessed on the hillside ought not to exist and that I was at a loss as to how to proceed with dealing with its threat. I informed them that I would need to return home to consult my notes, promising I would return as soon as I had a practical solution as how to deal with the boggart. At first, Abel and his daughter were unwilling to let me go, evidently fearing that I might not act on my word. I explained that if I remained with them, I might spend several weeks trying unsuccessfully to drive off the boggart through trial and error. Therefore, 
it made far more sense to tackle the issue having spent time consulting my library. Reluctantly, they agreed and bid me a fearful farewell, my promise of a hasty return still ringing in their ears. I set upon my notes with feverish intent, and within a matter of hours had devised a solution I deemed to be practical. I returned the following week, my carriage laden with bags of salt and boxes of horseshoes. Upon disembarking in the village, I gathered up a party of able-bodied men, and between us we carried the horseshoes and salt bags down the hillside to the edge of the marshlands. There I instructed that a perimeter of salt be laid around the brink of the marsh and that periodically a horseshoe be placed on the grass. Soon after, the endeavor was completed. Weary, we returned to the village and headed for the tavern, where I explained my plan to those gathered. Salt was a natural purifier, or so it was believed. Early folklore suggested that a boggart could not cross a line of salt, and by circling the marsh where it dwelled, essentially, we had formed a seal. The horseshoes were an added layer of protection, long thought to be objects of luck. Iron was believed to keep spirits and unnatural things away. What better way to strengthen a seal than with a large dose of good fortune? The villagers seemed happy with my explanation, and I went home, well paid and confident that the Abdon Boggart would trouble the villagers no more, so long as the salt barrier remained intact. From that day forwards, I made certain that whenever embroiled in an investigation, I traveled with a core library and an extensive collection of personal notes that would enable me to conduct further research without the need to return home. Over time, the titles which comprised my portable library were swapped and changed as I found myself absorbing much of their contents due to the frequency of my reading. Now I carry but one book with me. It resides in my breast pocket. This book contains information and key observations I have made during my investigations. I like to believe now that there is little I might be faced with which would leave me perplexed. To this day, I am yet to hear a single complaint regarding the Abdon Boggart and can only assume that the creature remains confined to the marshland, leaving the village to flourish once more. Hope you enjoyed tonight's tales the Tainted Isle, featuring The Devil in the Hill, The Hands of Evil, Father, The Hounds of Wisman's Wood, The Abdon Boggart, by Dan Weatherer. Award-winning author Dan Weatherer was first published by Haunted Magazine in spring 2013. Aside from the publication of numerous short stories with a multitude of presses, his next major project was a solo collection of short stories titled the Soul That Screamed, winner of the Predators and Editors Readers Poll Best Anthology 2013. An accomplished playwright, Dan was the winner of the 2017 Soundwork UK Play Competition, a finalist in the Blackshaw Showcase Award 2016, and a two-time finalist of the Congleton Players One Act Festival 2016. Dan has had several of his plays appear at festivals and fringe events. The Dead Stage, a book detailing Dan's experiences as a novice playwright, was published courtesy of Crystal Lake Publishing in October 2018. 
In 2019, Dan was nominated for a Local Heroes Award, the Sentinel, for his continued promotion of literacy and mental health issues in the city of Stoke-on-Trent. In 2020, Dan became a contributor for Creepypasta Stories and Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. 2020 also saw the release of his novella, Cheslin Meyer, Domain Publishing. Presently, Dan contributes to the YouTube channel Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and his stage plays continue to be sold and performed worldwide. Check out Dan's website at www.danweatherer.co.uk. That's D-A-N-W-E-A-T-H-E-R-E-R.co.uk. If you enjoyed tonight's story hosted by yours truly, Paul J. McSorley, you can search my name on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for additional previous stories. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks. Available now on audible.com or just visit paulsbooks.net. That's P-A-U-L-S-B-O-O-K-S dot net. You can also find me personally on Facebook and Twitter. And with that, listeners, our weekly journey into the psyche has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And while you're at it, please remember to stop by our Apple Podcast page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and subscribe. The charts are based on subscriptions, not listens. So if you haven't subscribed yet, I'd really appreciate it. I'm your host for Fear from the Heartland, Paul J. McSorley. I've enjoyed the titillation tonight. Ooh, there's that word again. Thank you for joining me. Hope to see you again next week at Fear from the Heartland.